Welcome to Eccentric Earth. I'm your host, Amy Walker, and joining me this week to delve into a story from history is my guest, Chris Haig. Hi. I just waved. I don't know why I waved. Um... <laughs> uh, we, don't, we don't even have a camera between the two of us. <laughs> that's what I mean. People listen to it, they're like, oh, they're clearly talking about a Skype thing, and that's why he waved. They're like, nope, just have it. <laughs> I'm just like, hi, nope, that doesn't make sense. What are you doing? Yeah. But yeah, hello. <laughs> oh. No, that's um, that's fine. You you wave to your heart's content, and uh... <laughs> fair enough. I will. I will. But no, thank you for for coming back on for for episode ten, our first double digit episode. I'm I guess excited. We've made this double digit. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, and and double digits will last a while now. So it's one of the few milestones we get. <laughs> that's true. That is true. That is pretty awesome. So I'm I'm honoured to be on. And uh, yeah, it's 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 fun times. We're getting some some great feedback now. Um, all you listeners are, are showing us fantastic support. The previous episode, the Colonel Sanders episode, seemed to go down an absolute treat with people. Oh, I haven't listened to. I'm, right. I'm, yeah. All right. I'm saving it for when I'm in work tomorrow because I'm just like okay. Ah. It's, it's going to be cold and miserable. I'm kind of going to need to hear something <laughs> about about this mysterious, like fried chicken connoisseur. So yeah, <laughs> I'm looking I'm looking forward to that one. Whilst last week's episode was our usual fun shenanigans, our show covers stories from history, and it's one of the sad facts of history that not everything is great, and we're not going to shy away from that. And this week's episode is going to be taking a look at a darker part of history. And you will know what the topic is, the listeners, from the episode title. And there is a content warning in the episode description. I'm going to issue another one now. If if you feel like you're not up to that, by all means, skip this episode. None of us will, will judge you. But yeah, thankfully, um, Chris is going to be here to go through this with me and hopefully we can all come out the other side of this fairly okay. Mm. James Oliver Huberty was born in Canton, Ohio, to Earl and Eichel Huberty on October 11th, 1942. When he was three years old, he contracted polio. And even though he made progressive recovery, the disease caused him to suffer permanent walking difficulties for the rest of his life. In the early 1950s, his father bought a farm in Pennsylvania in Amish country. His mother refused to live in Amish country and soon abandoned her family to do sidewalk preaching for a Southern Baptist organisation. A minister later claimed that Huberty blamed God for taking his mother away from him. In 1962, Huberty enrolled in Malone College, where he initially studied sociology before opting to study at the Pittsburgh Institute for Mortuary Science in Pennsylvania. 
1965, he married Etna Markland, who he had met whilst attending Malone College. Shortly after his marriage, Huberty obtained a license for embalming and obtained employment at a funeral home in Canton. He worked in this profession for two years before opting to become a welder. Shortly thereafter, he and his wife moved to Massillon, Ohio, where daughter Zelia and Cassandra were born in 1972 and 1974, respectively. Huberty, unfortunately, had a history of domestic violence, with Etna filing a report with the Canton Department of Children and Family Services that her husband had messed up her jaw. She would produce tarot cards and pretend to read his future to pacify him and his bouts of violence, thus producing a temporary calming effect. Huberty was a self-proclaimed survivalist and saw signs of what he thought were growing troubles in America. He believed that government regulations were the cause of business failures, including his own. He believed that international bankers were purposefully manipulating the Federal Reserve System and bankrupting the nation. Convinced that Soviet aggression was everywhere, he believed that the breakdown of society was near, perhaps through economic collapse or nuclear war. He committed himself to prepare to survive this coming collapse, and whilst in Canton, provisioned his house with thousands of dollars of non-perishable food and six guns that he intended to use to defend his home during what he believed was the coming chaos. According to one family acquaintance named Jim Aslans, Huberty's home was bedecked with loaded firearms to such a degree that when Huberty was sitting or standing, he could just reach over and grab a gun. Jesus. Yeah, that's um, being prepared to an extreme. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just to a to a minor extreme. God. Yeah, I can't even have a pen that close to hand in my home, let alone a loaded gun. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Furthermore, Huberty regularly vocalised the belief that the country wasn't treating him right, and that everything was being done against the working people. When Huberty and his family moved from Ohio to Tijuana, Mexico, in October 1983. He left all but the most essential of his family provisions in storage, but ensured that he brought his gun arsenal with him. According to published reports, Huberty's wife and daughters embraced their new environments and became friends with the neighbours, although Huberty, who spoke little Spanish, was often sullen. Within three months, the Hubertys had relocated to the San Diego neighbourhood of San Ysidro, where they rented a two-bedroom apartment in the Cottonwood Apartments. In San Ysidro, Huberty was able to find work as a security guard, and the family relocated to an apartment on Averill Road. He was dismissed from his security guard job on July 10th that year. On July 15th, Huberty commented to his wife that he suspected he might have mental problems. Two days later, on July 17th, he called a mental health clinic requesting an appointment. Leaving his contact details with the receptionist, he was assured that the clinic would return his call within hours. According to his wife, he sat quietly beside the telephone for several hours awaiting the return call, before abruptly walking out of the family home and riding to an unknown destination on his motorcycle. Unbeknownst to Huberty, the receptionist had taken down his details incorrectly. His polite demeanour conveyed no sense of immediate urgency to the operator, therefore the call was logged as a non-crisis inquiry to be handled within 48 hours. 
Approximately one hour later, Huberty returned home in a content mood. After eating dinner, he, his wife and their two daughters cycled to a nearby park. Later that evening, he and his wife watched a film together. The following morning, Wednesday, July 18th, Huberty took his wife and daughters to the San Diego Zoo. In the course of the walk, he told his wife that his life was effectively over. Referring to the mental health clinic's failure to to return his phone calls the previous day, he said, well, society had their chance. After eating lunch at a McDonald's restaurant in the Claremont neighbourhood of San Diego, the Huberties returned home. Shortly thereafter, he walked into this bedroom as his wife lay relaxing upon the bed. He leaned toward her and said, I want to kiss you goodbye. Etna asked him where he was going, to which he replied, he was going hunting humans. Oh, Jesus. Carrying a bundle wrapped in a checkered blanket, Huberty looked towards his elder daughter, Zelia, as he walked towards the front door of the family home and said, Goodbye, I won't be back. At approximately 3.56pm on July 18th, James Huberty drove his car into the parking lot of the McDonald's restaurant on San Ysidro Boulevard. In his possessions were a 9mm Browning HP semi-automatic pistol, a 9mm Uzi carbine, a Winchester 1200 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, and a cloth bag filled with hundreds of rounds of ammunition for each weapon. A total of 45 customers were present inside the restaurant. Entering the restaurant minutes later, Huberty first aimed his shotgun at 16-year-old employee named John Arnold. The assistant manager, Guillermo Flores, shouted, Hey John, that guy's going to shoot you. According to Arnold, when Huberty pulled the trigger, nothing happened. As Huberty inspected his gun, the manager of the restaurant, 22-year-old Neva Kane, walked towards the service counter of the restaurant in the direction of Arnold, as Arnold, believing the incident to be a distasteful joke, began to walk away from the gunman. Huberty then fired his shotgun towards the ceiling before aiming the Uzi at Kane, shooting her once beneath the left eye. Kane died minutes later. Immediately after shooting Kane, Huberty fired his shotgun at John Arnold, wounding the youth in the chest, before shouting a comment to the effects of everybody on the ground. Huberty referred to all present in the restaurant as dirty swines, shouting that he had killed thousands and that he intended to kill a thousand more. Upon hearing Huberty's expletive-ridden rants and seeing Kane and Arnold shot, one customer, 25-year-old Victor Riviera, tried to persuade Huberty not to shoot anyone. In response, Huberty shot Riviera 14 times, repeatedly screaming shut up as the man screamed in pain. As most of the customers tried to hide beneath the tables and service booths, Huberty turned his attention towards six women and children huddled together. He first shot and killed 19-year-old Maria Colmerno Silva with a single gunshot to the chest, then fatally shot 9-year-old Claudia Perez in the stomach, cheek, thigh, hip, leg, chest, back, armpit and head with his Uzi. He then wounded Perez's 15-year-old sister Imelda once in the chest with the same weapon and fired upon 11-year-old Aurora Pina with the shotgun. Pina, initially wounded in the leg, had been shielded by his pregnant aunt, 18-year-old Jackie Reyes. Huberty shot Reyes 48 times with the Uzi. Beside his mother's body, 
eight-month-old Carlos Reyes sat up and wailed, whereupon Huberty shouted and killed the infant with a single pistol shot to the centre of the back. Huberty shot and killed a 62-year-old trucker, Lawrence Versluis, before targeting one of the families near the play area of the restaurant, who had tried to shield their children beneath the tables with their bodies. Blythe Reagan Herrera, aged 31, had shielded her 11-year-old son, Mateo, beneath one booth, and her husband protected 12-year-old Keith Thomas under a booth across from them. Huberty began shooting people seated in the restaurant as he walked towards those under the tables. Ronald Herrera urged Thomas not to move, shielding the boy with his body. Thomas was shot in the shoulder, arm, wrist and left elbow, but was not seriously wounded. Ronald Herrera was shot eight times in the stomach, chest, arm and head, but survived. His wife, Blythe, and son, Mateo, were both killed by numerous gunshots to the head. Nearby, two women tried to hide beneath a booth. Guadalupe Del Rio, aged 24, was against a wall. She was shielded by her friend, 31-year-old Aracilda Vargas. Del Rio was hit several times in the back, abdomen, chest and neck, but was not seriously wounded, whereas Vargas received a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. She died of a wound the next day, the only person fatally wounded who lived long enough to reach a hospital. At another booth, Huberty killed 45-year-old banker Hudo Velasquez with a shot to the chest. The first of many calls to the emergency services was made at 4pm, although the dispatcher mistakenly directed responding officers to another McDonald's restaurant two miles away from the San Ysidro Boulevard restaurant. Within 10 minutes, the police had arrived at the correct restaurant. They imposed a lockdown on the area spanning six blocks from the site of the shooting. The police established a command post two blocks from the restaurant and deployed 175 officers in strategic locations. These officers were joined within hours by SWAT team members who also took positions around the McDonald's restaurant. Shortly after the first 911 call had been made, a young woman named Lydia Flores drove into the parking lot. Stopping at the food pickup window, Flores noticed shattered windows and the sound of gunfire before looking up and he was just there shooting, she would later say. Flores reversed her car until she crashed into a fence. She hid with her two-year-old daughter until the shooting ended. Three 11-year-old boys rode their bikes into the west parking lot to purchase drinks. Hearing a member of the public yell something from across the street, all three hesitated before Huberty shot the three boys with his shotgun and Uzi. Joshua Coleman fell to the ground critically wounded in his back, arm and leg. He later recalled looking towards his two friend, Omar Alonso Hernandez and David Flores Delgado, noting that Hernandez was on the ground with multiple gunshot wounds to his back and had started vomiting. Delgado had received several gunshot wounds to his head. Coleman survived but his two friends both died at the scene. Huberty next noticed an elderly couple, Miguel Victoria Uloa and Ada Velasquez Victoria, walking towards the entrance. As Miguel reached to open the door for his wife, Huberty fired his shotgun, killing Ada with a gunshot to the face and wounding Miguel. An uninjured survivor, Oscar Mondragon, later reported that he had seen Miguel cradling his wife in his arms and wiping blood from her face. Miguel shouted curses at Huberty, 
who approached him and killed him with a shot to the head. At approximately 4.10pm, a Mexican couple, Alstolfo and Marcelia Felix, drove towards one of the service areas of the restaurant. Noting shattered glass, Alstolfo initially thought renovation work was in progress and that Huberty, striding towards the car, was a repairman. Huberty fired his shotgun and Uzi at the couple and their four-month-old daughter, Carlita, striking Marcella in the face, chest and arms, blinding her in one eye and permanently rendering one hand unusable. Her baby was critically wounded in the neck, chest and abdomen. Astolfo was wounded in the chest and head. As Astolfo and Marcelia staggered away from Huberty's line of fire, Marcelia put her shrieking child into the arms of a fleeing woman and shouted in Spanish, please save my baby, before slumping against a parked car. The woman rushed, a ba- rushed the baby to a nearby hospital as her husband assisted Alstolfo and Marcelia in a nearby building. Thankfully, all three members of the Felix family survived. Oh, thank God. I know it's, I know it's only a small thing, but Jesus, I needed to yeah. to, to... God. <sighs> Are you doing okay? Yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah, 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 I'm fine, I just, um, yeah, there's not a lot of stuff to say. Several survivors later said they saw Huberty walk towards the service counter and adjust a portable radio, possibly searching for news reports, before selecting a music station and returning to shooting. Shortly thereafter, he searched the kitchen area, discovering six employees. He opened fire, killing 21-year-old Paulina Lopez, 19-year-old Elsa Borboa Fierro, and 18-year-old Margarita Padilla, and critically wounding 17-year-old Alberto Leas. Padilla had urged her colleague, 17-year-old Wendy Flanagan, to run before being fatally shot. Flanagan four other employees and a female customer hid inside a basement utility room. They were joined by Leos, who had crawled into the utility room after being shot multiple times. When a fire engine drove up in range, Huberty repeatedly pierced the vehicle with bullets, but did not wound any of the occupants. Hearing a wounded teenager, 19-year-old Jose Perez, moaning, Huberty fatally shot him in the head. The boy slept dead in the booth. Perez died alongside his friend and neighbour, 22-year-old Gloria Gonzalez, and a woman named Michelle Carncross. At one point, Aurora Pena, who had lain wounded beside her dead aunt, baby cousin, and two friends, noted a lull in the firing. Opening her eyes, she saw Huberty nearby, staring at her. He swore, threw down a bag of french fries he was eating, then retrieved his shotgun and shot her in the arm, neck, and chest. She survived, although she would be hospitalised longer than any other survivor. Throughout the assault, Huberty blurted justifications before murdering his victims as he shot them. Fuck off. Police had established a command post two blocks from the restaurant. They initially did not know how many shooters were inside, since Huberty was using firearms of several different types, and rapidly firing numerous shots. Because most of the restaurant's windows had been shattered by gunfire, reflections from shards of glass made it difficult for for the police to see inside. 
A police sniper who was part of the SWAT team was positioned on the roof of the post office next door to the McDonald's. He was authorised to kill Huberty should he have a clear shot. At 5.17pm, the SWAT sniper perched on the post office roof obtained an unobstructed view of Huberty from the neck down for a few seconds. He fired a single round which entered Huberty's chest, severing the, the aorta just under his heart and exited through his spine, leaving an exit wound one inch square and sending him sprawling backwards onto the floor directly in front of the service counter, killing him instantly. The incident had lasted for 78 minutes, during which time Huberty fired a minimum of 245 rounds of ammunition, killing 20 people and wounding 20 others, one of whom died the following day. 17 of the victims were killed inside the restaurant and four in the immediate vicinity. Several victims had tried to staunch their bleeding with napkins, often in vain. Of the fatalities, 13 died from gunshot wounds to the head, 7 from gunshots to the chest, and one victim, 8-month-old Carlos Reyes, from a single 9mm gunshot wound to the back. The victims, whose ages ranged from 8 months old to 74 years, were predominantly, though not exclusively, of Mexican or Mexican-American ancestry, reflecting local demographics. Although Huberty had shouted at the beginning of his shooting spree that he had killed thousands in a comment indicating that he was a veteran of the Vietnam War, he had never actually served in any military branch. Because of the number of victims, local funeral homes had to use the San Ysidro Civic Centre to hold all of the wakes. The local parish, Mount Carmel Church, held back-to-back funeral masses to accommodate all of the dead. Within two days of the mass shooting, the San Ysidro Boulevard restaurant had been refurbished and renovated. Jesus. Yeah, McDonald's don't fuck around, apparently. Wow, okay. It was planning to again open for business in the hope that, as one employee commented, the restaurant would become just another McDonald's. After discussions with community leaders, it was decided the restaurant would not reopen. The newly renovated restaurant was demolished on July 28th. McDonald's later built another restaurant nearby. McDonald's also announced a committee to donate $1 million to the survivors' funds, with Joan Kroc, the widow of the McDonald's founder, Ray Kroc, also adding a personal contribution of $100,000 to the fund. Good. It's, it's, it's... Because I've never heard of this, but I'll be honest, when you started describing it, I have Googled it as we've been talking. Um, and I just... it. I think, particularly because at time of recording, we are just just over two weeks out from another um, such incident in Florida and I just this took place in what was the year again 1984 this took place nearly 35 years ago and nothing has changed there has been no gun legislation there's been nothing for machine guns handguns or any anything 21 people died in McDonald's restaurant. 17 kids and their teachers died 
in a school and I just I don't get it. I don't get why people think that their need to have a portable death machine outweighs someone else's safety and their right to life. I don't understand it. And, you know, I'm sure the people who listen to Eccentric Earth, I'm sure you're all wonderful and, you know, you understand where I'm coming from. But if you're there thinking, well, you know, he's British, Amy's British, they don't know where it's coming from. We had it in the 90s. We had this in uh, Dunblane in which I think 20... Um, twenty odd kids and their teacher were killed with with, um, with guns. And within eighteen months, we had completely banned any you know regulation machine guns, handguns, anything like that in, in the UK. You have to have special permits for hunting rifles, and that's literally yeah. it. If you're not police, and I eight, eighteen months, eighteen. You know, we managed to pull that together. You know, it happens in Australia. It happens in Canada. It happens in all these countries. And I just, my only, my only great big hope is this kind of uprising we're seeing at the moment. Because I'm just sad. I am sad and mortified that an eight-month-old or a four-year-old or you know, children or teenagers or anyone who got shot for simply, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time because some middle-aged prick decided to go off on one. They had their lives removed because of that, and we can't help stop it. We can't, you know, say, well, maybe we should register this, or maybe we should look after this, because no, it all comes down to some silly law enacted a couple hundred years ago, and I don't get it. I don't. If you can seriously explain to me what is so important about having a gun that means that your son or your daughter or your best friend or your mother or, you know, anyone could just go and just be in the wrong place at the wrong time and get shot. What is so important about that? Sorry, sorry. No, um, yeah, sorry, go <laughs> no I, it's, it's fine. I, I completely agree. And I know this is a hot topic at the minute. And, mm. you know, some people would probably say your history podcast don't get political but well that and history is political it's like you said this this was over 30 years ago a baby was was killed how was this not the last incident yeah how was how was columbine not the last incident how was pulse not the last incident how were any of these not the last incident and i yeah. I think a lot of it is down to the cowardice of politicians. Oh, entirely. I think it's down to the cowardice. I think it's down to the fact that you know they're so they're so entrenched in this mindset, this selfish mindset, which is just well, no one's going to take my gun away from me. No one's going to take my thing. Right, I understand that, but maybe think of yourselves beyond yourself. You are not living as an island. You are living as part of society, and the greater good for society is. Maybe, maybe, just don't, don't ban all guns. I completely understand, you know, that might be a step too far. But at least put gun control checks in. Make it so that some mental survivalist or some, you know, pissed off 19-year-old with a grudge can't just get hold of a semi-automatic weapon and just decide to massacre McDonald's or his old high school or a university college campus or something. I don't think that's too much to ask. And yet somehow, it's very the politicians, it's like, well, it's a great infringement on our freedom. Well, sorry, 
and I know this speaks against a lot of personal freedom and everything, but maybe it's worth sacrificing a little bit of freedom for a bit of safety. Yeah. I, I get it, America has this big kind of creed and you know, kind of ethos which is like, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, great, okay. But it's nothing if it's not also safe for your children. Yeah. You know, and 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 Darren is, you know, I, I get it, I'm I'm a I'm a white guy talking about this and pretty much every bar maybe I think one or two Every single major spree killer in the United States and in the UK has been a guy who doesn't look too far away from me. But I'm just, I'm mad and I'm upset and I'm sorry. I am so heartbroken that anyone ever has to go through this, you know. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I've said it before, I've said it again, I don't get it. I don't get I mean, all things aside about why that would go through someone's head, that's an entirely separate issue. I don't get why you would even give them access. I watched a, I, I watched a comedy special. I don't know what it was. Um, Chris Rock. I watched a thing on Netflix a couple of days ago, and talking about like the Las Vegas incident last year, or you know the horrific stuff that went on at the Pulse nightclub in 2016. That kind of horrible, targeted stuff. And he was saying, you know, like, I understand people say, oh, we would have killed anyway. It's like, well, yeah, but if he doesn't have a gun, the kind of stuff he can create mass murder with is fairly yeah. limited. So I'm not denying, I'm not saying if you get rid of guns, you will get rid of every single mass murder yeah. spree killer in, you know, the world. It's not going to happen. I understand that. But why not severely limit the damage they can yeah. do? Why not take that precautionary step? I mean, for God's sake, we've got. They, America bans Kinder Eggs, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. They ban Kinder Eggs because they think kids will choke on them, and yet they don't ban guns, which can kill hundreds of people. Yeah. And I know this is really inappropriate. I really want a Kinder Egg now. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <sighs> that's, that's, if if the listeners, if you haven't seen it, there's, there's a, it was done in three parts, a, a small um, segment of the Daily Show from a few years ago, where John Oliver went to Australia and and covered their banning of guns, and it's it's worth a watch for showing how easy it is to do and how quick it can be done. Yeah. But the the thing in it that highlights why America won't is all of the politicians who are involved in putting gun safety and gun control through effectively ended their careers by doing it because people were so pissed off with them that they never got voted in again that was it their jobs were essentially gone mm. they didn't have the career and and while some people might say well fair enough politicians have to protect their jobs they can't do that same thing he asked those people if it was worth their career they said yes without any glimmer of hesitation because they know that it saved lives and that's what people in America need to do. They need to have the balls to say, okay, this might be the end of my political career. I might be fucked after this, but kids won't die anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just that. You can always, even if it's not a great job, you can always find something else or you can always like, you know move into a different field or consider other stuff or that sort of thing. I, 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 I don't know how you could 
in a way live with yourself knowing that yeah because of the thing I helped pass it was easy enough for this guy to shoot up a movie theatre or his college or drive-by shootings or you know like I was on the Wikipedia page for the um for the for the massacre we're talking about and at the top of the page there's a little thing that says the shooting ranked as the deadliest mass shooting com- committed in the United States until the 1991 Luby shooting it's currently the seventh deadliest mass shooting in US history we're talking about the deaths of 21 people and it's the seventh yeah not like oh it's the big you know that sort of thing so at some stage there has to be like a wake up call there has to be a, uh, oh I just no I just feel bad for the listener because they've just had to listen to me do basically a 10 minute run and that's yeah. fine I think that yeah. they're, they're going to see what this is before they go into it so I think they're oh, going to expect yeah. some anti-gun rants. <laughs> yeah, sorry if you were coming in for like a really kind of impartial, like, oh, that happened sort of thing. But yeah, I just, yeah. Following the closure of the restaurant, McDonald's donated the ground to the city with the stipulation that no restaurant could ever be constructed on the site. For over four years, alternate plans to convert the site into either a memorial park or shrine to the dead were under consideration. Several makeshift memorials were built, but torn down. The land was sold in February 1988 to Southwestern College for $136,000, with the agreement that the 300-square-foot area in front of the campus extension the college intended to construct be set aside as a permanent memorial to the 21 victims. The memorial consists of 21 hexagonal white marble pillars ranging in height from one to six feet, each bearing the name of one of the victims. It was designed by Roberto Valdez, a former student at Southwestern College, who said of the sculpture, the 21 hexagons represent each person that died, and they are different heights, representing the variety of ages and races of the people involved in the massacre. They are bound together in the hopes that the community, in a tragedy like this, will stick together like they did. Each anniversary, the monument is decorated with flowers, and on the Mexican holiday Day of the Dead, candles and offerings are brought on behalf of the victims. As a result of the massacre, the city of San Diego increased training for special units and purchased more powerful firearms to better equip police to deal with such scenarios. According to one officer, who confessed to feeling inadequate because he had been equipped with a 38 caliber revolver, the time has come when you have to have a full-time, committed, dedicated, highly trained, well-equipped team to be able to respond rapidly anywhere in the city. Several family members of those killed, along with survivors of the massacre, filed lawsuits against the McDonald's Corporation and the local franchisee in the Superior Court of California, The court eventually consolidated these lawsuits and then dismissed them before trial on a defence motion of summary judgment. The plaintiffs appealed. On the 25th of July 1987, the California Court of Appeals affirmed summary judgment for the defendants because 1. McDonald's or any other business has no duty of care to protect patrons from an unforeseeable assault by a murderous madman and 2. 
Plaintiffs could not prove causation because the standard reasonable measures normally used by a restaurant to deter criminals, such as guards and closed-circuit television cameras, could not possibly have deterred the perpetrator because he, because he did not care about his own survival. In the weeks following the massacre, Huberty's wife and daughters stayed with a family friend. Amidst impromptu protests from some residents, Etna herself received the first payout from the Survivors Fund. In 1986, she unsuccessfully sued both McDonald's and Babcock and Wilcox, her husband's longtime former employer, in an Ohio state court for $5 million. The suit claimed that the massacre was triggered by both a poor diet and her husband working around highly poisonous metals, further citing that monosodium glutamate in McDonald's food, combined with high levels of lead and cadmium discovered in Huberty's body at his autopsy, most likely built up from fumes inhaled during his 14 years as a welder, had induced delusions and uncontrollable rage. Bullshit. Sorry. Um, yeah. Sorry to the idea she, she sued my doll saying, well, if you want that MSG in your stuff, you might not have. Yeah. I'm, I'm crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of, I mean, I, I get she, she might want someone to blame and she can't blame him because he's not hearing everything, but like McDonald's were not to blame. No. They lost what was it, like three or four employees during during the targeting? Yeah. What the I no, no, sorry. She she has my sympathy as the widow of somebody who did some horrific acts. But I don't no. I can't no. I, I, I can't get on board with that. She should no. have better. It's that's the same as blaming movies or video uh, games and you can't say that because he ate some mcdonald's it caused yeah. him to be a mass murderer yeah i mean i'm not denying you know it's entirely possible that you know builds with chemicals it has been shown that it can alter behavior and everything but then i mean first of all the the, the sheer crack of going like oh well poor diet so he ate a lot of mcdonald's um and the msg and that yeah that clearly helped cause it not only is that bad science it's fucking bad form you know, to do that to a company who've lost employees in that in in in, in that location, and everything. But also, I can't really feel that if you were going to sue money, then maybe help help the survivors, help the people who lost family members. Don't do it as like, oh well, me and my family need like I know it's a shitty, horrible thing to happen, but you you've got to live with being on the wrong side of that. Yeah, you have got to be like, listen. What my husband did was horrible and shitty. I'm so, so sorry. I will help any way I can, but I didn't know about it. That sort of thing. That's what you do. You don't go a couple of years later going, do you know what? I'm going to sue McDonald's because they made my husband react in this way, which is completely robbing the agency. It's why I hate this narrative where they're always like, oh, well, you know, he was, you know, he was mentally unstable. He was mentally like this. Like, I... I study psychology, I'm, I'm finishing up my master's in it at the moment, and it's great to be able to go, oh yeah, no, it was caused by this, or it might be caused by that, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you still need to give people agency. You still yeah. need to be able to go, yeah, they had a choice, and they went for this. A lot of stuff's unconscious, but, you know, something like this, it, it wasn't an automatic process, it wasn't caused by delusion or hallucinations. He decided to harbour all these guns as a survivalist and then he chose 
to take out the world by killing 21 people. So don't, don't, don't come at me or don't come at anyone else saying you deserve X million dollars for this. Yeah. <sighs> James Huberty's body was cremated on July 23rd, 1984. His ashes were interred in his home state of Ohio. In a 2015 interview, Huberty's eldest daughter, Zalia, age 12 at the time of the incident, revealed that she had witnessed the entire incident. I had perfect view of it. I saw the car there. I saw everything. I saw people I knew who I went to school with. I wasn't thinking anything at that time except better them than me. I know that's a horrible thing to say, but as a 12-year-old, that's the sort of thing you think. But if I could go back in time, I would probably have killed my father before any of this would have occurred. Mm. Etna Huberty and her daughters relocated from San Ysidro to the nearby town of Spring Valley, where her daughters enrolled in a school under assumed names. Etna Huberty died of breast cancer in 2003. Following the incident, survivor Alberto Leos became a police officer and served in several police departments in South Bay, eventually joining the San Diego Police Department. That's... I mean, I, I don't know if I can call it like a... not really happy ending, but he he survived, he crawled his way... Yeah. ...into the basement and everything, so clearly he's got kind of a core of steel. So I think that he, he, hopefully he's a service to the, credit to the force and he's serving people well, so... Um, and I, I, I guess it's also really nice to know that it, this wasn't the thing that defined the survivors. Yeah. That they went on and, you know, because obviously there were some who had kind of life-changing injuries and some who lost family members and some who both. Or, I'm, I'm genuinely really glad that out of all of this, we have at least one story where it was like, oh, okay, rather than kind of... Because I, I, can, I can entirely imagine that kind of pain and rage and anger and darkness that would come following that. And instead, he decided, I'm going to go out and help people. And I think that is hugely, hugely admirable. So he is, yeah, he's kind of, he's kind of my little ray of, of light in this whole thing. <sighs> you can't exactly say a silver lining because there, there's no such thing as anything good about this incident, but... Yeah, I would... Yeah. The, o- the only silver lining of this um, would be that... I, well, I don't know. Because the silver lining is like pulling something good out of a bad situation. I'm like, yeah. yeah. I think it's more... Something to give you hope is that someone can go through yeah. something so completely yeah. horrific and not only not be broken by it but come out someone determined to to help others and yeah to try and stop stuff like this happening again that that is well, it's like it, very inspiring it reminds me of um weirdly it is not a school shooting thing and it is a it's one story that we got told um as history students um and it's about a professor who oh my god what's his name uh I am going to find him. Uh, Alice Liviu um, Labrescu. Uh, and he was a professor of, I think, physics or of 
um, some kind of science or maths. He was he was there when it was the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007, I believe. Mm. Um, and Professor Labrescu was a Holocaust survivor. Wow. So he basically barricaded the door, got his students out. I think one student was killed. But Professor Labrescu basically gave his life to get his students out. And so it's little... It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like whenever there's stuff like, you know, Virginia Tech or the Las Vegas shooting or Pulse or whenever the stories of the survivors and everything, you do tend to find stories of hope or stories of endurance or mm. of people who in the aftermath are saying, I, we don't care about the guy who did this or anything. We just are glad to be alive. We're glad to be doing this. So, yeah, it's that kind of thing with, um, uh, with the guy who's now become a police officer. I just, yeah, trying to, trying to find some, trying to find some humanity in all of it. There's that quote, it's like, whenever there's a crisis, look for the people who run towards it to help. Yeah. This was intense. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for, for yourself and, and the listeners, this, I, I knew that there were certain aspects of history that are unpleasant, some that are, are downright horrific, and we know some of these so well, like the Holocaust, you know, it's one of the worst moments of human history, but everyone knows about it. I hadn't heard of this at all. No. And it's no, so horrific and brutal, and maybe, you know, the cynic in me is saying, well you didn't hear about it because this happens every other week in America but I think it's yeah. too simple to to say something like that and just move on these kind of stories you need to address them you need to remember them because this shouldn't just be a statistic this is real people whose lives were ended and they deserve to be remembered and not just be the seventh mass shooting seventh worst mass shooting in America and and then forgotten about and and that's that's yeah. why I picked it and it's it was horrible to research I'm sure it's been horrible for some of the listeners if I'm completely honest I had to read this through three or four times today to get to the point where I could get through it because when I researched it I was reduced to tears I I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to actually read this out and I, I'm incredibly grateful for, for yourself, Chris, for being here to go through this with oh. me and for those listeners who have who have stuck through to the end of this episode. It's Yeah. Yeah. If you've if you've made it through to the end, then thank you for sticking with us. Um and <laughs> thank you for listening, even though, you know, we were di- diverging from times and talking about kind of wider issues and all that sort of thing. But it is important that we talk about this kind of stuff, and it is important that even even though you know it's a it's a podcast and we don't affect like U.S. legislation or anything, that we do talk about this kind of stuff and we put it out there into the world. Yeah, I I'm, I'm with Amy. I had no idea that this was even a thing. Um, I am horrified that that this is kind of something as big and as horrific as this is just. Not, not even mentioned. Not even like, oh, yeah, 
this is something horrible that happened. It's just become one of a series of horrible things. It's the seventh most horrible thing. But I think the hazard. I think the way that you would kind of move forward from it, or at least the way it, I would, is give way more focus and attention to the victim and the, to the survivors. You know, you can focus all the attention on the killer all you want, but at the end of the day, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve any of it. What's gone down in Florida in the past couple of weeks has been horrific, but the aftermath with the survivors being so open and kind of honest and refusing to kind of let the tragedy define their their narrative, I think is incredible. I think it is brilliant. I never thought I'd see something like this in my lifetime, and I'm thrilled to be um, completely wrong. So, um, touch wood that this never happens, happens again, or, yeah, let's, let's just go with that. Yeah. Um... Normally, I, I sort of phrase this as if people enjoyed this episode, where can they find you online? I think enjoy is yeah. not the word I'd use, but no, um... yeah, if, if it's not, yeah, it's not um, perhaps the best term. Uh, if you were kind of annoyed by my by my voice and would like to kind of um, yeah read more of my inane kind of rubbish, you could find. Uh, me on Twitter at higher underscore boy. Um, I run, um, well, I, I co-host a couple of uh, other podcasts with one of my best mates, Emma Platt. Uh, well, I co-host one podcast with my um, uh, one of my best mates, Emma Platt, which is North by Nerdwest, which is a very um, silly, chatty, uh, nerdy show where we basically just meet up every so often and have a chat about all things nerdy. We've got a new episode, which hopefully we'll be recording in the next few days and then hopefully we'll be out a few days after that and that'll be a lot of fun about our kind of February favourites I'm looking forward to the year of nerd. Uh, I also run, uh, I also co-host uh, a show called Good Evening and Alfred Hitchcock podcast which is a show that I do with two of my favourite Canadians, uh, Brandon Seamus Harlow and Tom Cornwell and we're basically doing a um a chronological view of all Hitchcock um, stuff in terms of the films and then stuff like Bates Motel. Um, it's a lot of fun. If you're into Hitchcock, we are doing it chronologically. We have just wrapped up the silent films, so which I'm very thrilled about. So we're moving into the kind of 19, 1929, 1930s uh, talking films. So that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, follow me on Twitter if you really want to see my Indian postings about how much uh, I am into RuPaul's Drag Race or into the latest kind of pop music because apparently I have no taste but I really don't care so yeah cool. and you can find Eccentric Earth on Twitter as well um, you can go to at eccentric underscore earth where you can follow us we're also on Facebook and Instagram and these accounts are kept up to date with information about upcoming shows, as well as tidbits and facts from history. If you want to write into us with any suggestions for future episodes or with any feedback, our email address is eccentricearth at outlook.com. And you can find the show on all major podcast providers, so please make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. Okay, 
Okay, so thank you everyone for yes. listening, and thank you, thank you Chris, for, for joining me for the, the first of the darker episodes. It's been an experience that I'm thankful that you were here for. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you, you know, thank you for having me, and uh, yeah, to anyone who is still listening, thanks for coming on this uh, quite dark ride with us. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.